Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Bullshit is the glue that binds us as a nation. Where would we be without our safe, familiar American bullshit? Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal, justice is blind, the press is free, your vote counts. <laughs> Business is honest, the good guys win, the police are on your side, God is watching you, your standard of living will never decline, and everything is gonna be just fine. The official national bullshit story. I call it the American okey-doke. Every one of those items is provably untrue at one level or another, but we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. That's what they do with that kind of stuff. They put it in the heads of kids, they pound it in there because kids, they know kids are too young to be able to mount a sophisticated argument against these kind of ideas. And so, uh, kids, and up to a certain age, by the way, kids are going to believe everything a grown-up tells them, everything. So, they, so kids never learn to question things. Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody questions things. Why? Now, there's one thing you might have noticed I don't complain about. Politicians. Everybody complains about politicians. Everybody says they suck. Yeah. Well, where do people think these politicians come from? They don't fall out of the sky. They don't pass through a membrane from another reality. They come from American parents and American families, American homes, American schools, American churches, American businesses, and American universities, and they're elected by American citizens. This is the best we can do, folks. This is what we have to offer. It's what our system produces. Garbage in, garbage out. If you have selfish, ignorant citizens, if you have selfish, ignorant citizens, you're going to get selfish, ignorant leaders. And term limits ain't going to do you any good. You're just going to wind up with a brand new bunch of selfish, ignorant Americans. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's not the politicians who suck. Maybe something else sucks around here like the public. Yeah, the public sucks. There's a nice campaign slogan for somebody. The public sucks. Fuck hope. Fuck hope. is Steve Cox. Steve is a photojournalist and he is running, running as an independent candidate in Congressional District 39 in California, which is the area of Chino Hills and surroundings. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you. So one of the things that you talk about is that Congress should be like us. You think that, uh, and I think this is a really important conversation right now, given the government shutdown. We are, we currently see what, mm -hmm. 800,000 um, government jobs where people are being forced to work without pay. And that doesn't even touch the contractors mm -hmm. that are uh, never going to get back pay, but are losing their jobs as well. But this entire time, yep. Congress collects its pay. And um, I'm not sure yep. Trump ever made good on his promise not to take not to take pay but if he is taking pay he's getting paid 400k a year so here we have these folks playing in the sand pit and in the meanwhile you have a balance of folks that are losing their livelihood that are you know having to get food from food banks i've seen reports 
of this because a lot of these folks live paycheck to paycheck and it's pretty disgusting. So mm-hmm. um, you have this um, idea that congressional pay should be based on the median median wage of the district that they represent, meaning that so instead of getting yeah. 174000 plus a year that they're paid, their pay would be based on whatever district they're from, slightly over whatever the median wage is. So explain to me how this would work right. and where you got the idea. Well, um, the the main idea, the main point behind this is accountability, because um, I felt for a very long time, and I think most people, even even partisan types, will agree with this, um, if they, you know if they keep their heads clear about it, that the Congress and and our representatives generally might as well live in a different planet. You know, they they their their pay is guaranteed. They they run in completely different circles, and it takes almost no time, even if they go in with good intentions in most cases, it takes almost no time for them to completely lose touch with the people that they're supposed to be representing. So um, what I want to do is tie congressional pay to the median wage in their district. Um, My initial idea is to uh, help cover like a one-bedroom apartment or, or, you know, a basic living quarters in D.C., because that currently comes out of congressional pay at 174 k a year. Um, and it is difficult to maintain two households, which you typically do have to do. So but what I would like to do is uh, cover the basic expenses of living in D.C. for the congressperson, but then pay them, if possible, pay them exactly um, what the median wage is in their district. So, you know, whoever ends up representing Beverly Hills is going to be doing really well. But that seems fine to me because, again, those are people like those are the people they're supposed to be representing in the first place. So, you know, whatever. Um, and and I also think it'll it'll lead to having more, um, you know, economically disadvantaged people ending up in Congress at some point, because in those communities where, um, you know, there are a lot of poor people in inner cities and things like that. Um, they still end up with these rich representatives, you know, and it's, it just doesn't, how are you going to, how are you going to represent those people? You know, you have no idea how they live for me. I want to do, or I will, I've already pledged to give away my own pay above the median in this district and the median household wage in this district is $80,000 approximately. Okay. So I'm going to be, donating $94,000 a year to uh, teachers in my district to reimburse them for supplies that come out of their own pocket. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, give a direct benefit that way. And it's also an easy charity to run where it won't get eaten up. You know, the, the money won't get eaten up because it's trying to, you know, put it out. I've got, I've got friends that are teachers that have already volunteered that when I get in, they'll, they'll take that on. So even if I, you know, up until the point that I can actually get this bill introduced and try and get it passed, um, and all that stuff, I'm going to actually be doing it myself because, you know, I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what, di- um, what school district is the Chino Hills uh, part of? Is it part of a larger school district or are they uh, their own? Um, yeah, Chino Hills is part of the Chino Valley Unified School District, but, but there are multiples in here. This district is, you know, it, it's gerrymandered, so yeah. like most things in any, any state. So, um, yeah, so it's like, it's in three different counties and like seven or eight different cities. Okay. And um, so Cheeto Hills is the only city like Cheeto Hills is in the district and it's the only city in San Bernardino County. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chino is not in the district. So figure that oh, out. That's, um, and yeah, then, that's weird. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's also like Walnut, um, Diamond Bar, Hacienda Heights, et cetera, out in okay. LA County. Um, and then Orange County, it's like, uh, Yorba Linda, Brea, Fullerton, um, La Habra, yeah. um, and all that stuff there. So, so it's, yeah, it's a weird district, but it is you know, a weird I grew district. up here my whole life. So. Areas as well. Those are a lot of those areas. Diamond Bar, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. So upper I, middle class. Yeah. yeah, upper middle class. So no, I think um, I get your point. And you know, a lot of the times we've seen uh, all. I think almost all folks in Congress, minus this year, we've finally started seeing changes in the previously have been millionaires because the barrier to entry for running for Congress is exceedingly high. And I do yeah. think it affects the kind of policy that, that gets um, represented. So this this past, uh-huh. we have some freshmen this past cycle, though, that are definitely not in that category. And they're taking on the establishment in ways we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, obviously, AOC, yeah. Ocasio is, is one of those. Uh, so I'm hoping that, that this is the start of a change. Uh, you know, carpetbagging has always been with us. Both parties engage in this. They yep. find somebody that they can send back to a district and, uh, you know, yep. put money that's, behind them. That's who won this district. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So Amy Valella, uh, the person that ran against her in Nevada was a carpetbagger, for example, is another one. Um, so I just... Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not designed. You know, the people, if you want to, if I can speak in the grand they, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah, yeah, the they, you. the people at the top, the elite, the own this place. Yeah, uh, those, those people—they're not truly interested in in Congress that represents the people. Right. I mean, that's pretty obvious. So, um, you know, a lot of this stuff—you answer your own question. I think because all you have to do is understand that that the people at the top have no real interest in having a true democratic representation of of their people in in our government, and it hasn't been that way, as you know from probably that you probably know from that uh, famous Princeton study that. Um, went from like 1981 to 2002 or something like that and observed 1,800 different political uh, uh, positions, you know, held by the public, held by the economic elite and, and what was pushed for by, by special interest groups. Yeah. And they found that it didn't matter what percentage, literally did not matter what percentage of the public wanted or did not want a certain policy to be implemented. Right. Um, they got it at the same rate, regardless of the percentage, because it because it the rate actually coincides almost perfectly with what the economic elites want, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know, yeah, that's not yeah, shocking. it's not designed right <laughs> now. No, it's not shocking. It's not shocking. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, the guy that won in our district, Gil Cisneros, uh, I, I don't have any problem stating that he's not a smart person. Uh, we were in uh, half a dozen or more. We were in a half a dozen or more debates together, and I got uh-huh. to spend a lot of time with this guy. There's a new contender for a longtime California congressman's seat in Orange County. Yeah, the congressional hopeful has no political experience, but has plenty of financing from winning a huge lottery jackpot. CBS 2's Randy Page is live with more on today's big announcement. Randy? Rick, Susie, think about it. What would you do if suddenly you find you are independently wealthy? You do not need to earn a paycheck. You could, of course, take care of your family, contribute to as many charitable causes as you can find. But then what? Well, Gil Cisneros decided to run for Congress. 
I come from humble beginnings. This is the first time Gil Cisneros has ever run for office, and today he announced he's joining the field of Democratic challengers who hope to unseat incumbent Republican Ed Royce in California's 39th district. I don't consider myself a politician. Cisneros is a former shipping manager and Navy veteran who won a $266 million lottery jackpot along with his wife Jackie in 2010. And among his many charitable works, Cisneros and his wife formed a foundation to provide college scholarships for Latino students. And he now turns his Well, he, literally, he actually has a huge, a huge uh, house in Newport Beach, mm -hmm. actually on, in Orange County. And, and, uh, um, you know, so he's a carpetbagger, but basically in early 2017, after Trump won, he started flying back to D.C. and he met with a bunch of Democratic strategists and, and lobbyists within the party and things like that. And um, started donating a bunch of his $266 million lottery winnings that he got in 2010. And, and then he went back there and he started donating all this money to the DCCC, yep, to the DCCC and the DNC and all this stuff. And so they gave him their backing, yeah. um, and they assigned they assigned the 39th district in California to him at that time. Like, hey, you go after this one because they're trying to strategize who's going to go where. Right, right, and honestly, right. I don't think they even thought he was going to win because. But then um, Ed Royce ended up retiring and all this stuff, and he still barely scratched it out by, you know, a couple thousand votes or something over over somebody who nobody knew and and um, and who had you know have less than half of the time to campaign and everything else is gilded. And he spent, well, I think four and a half times the money. And he spent like 11 or $12 million of his own money to get a job that's going to pay over two years, $348,000. That, that to me is already a problem, right? Cause you're mm -hmm. going to be in the, in Congress approving or denying budgets and things like that. And it's not, I'm an MMT guy. So it's not like I'm really worried about any of that stuff per se. But if you think it's a good idea, to spend eleven million dollars for a job that pays you three hundred and forty-eight grand over two years, you know, it's that's a problem. Like, I don't think you have a good, a good uh, mental capacity or you know, logical capabilities to be deciding how our government should be spending. Yeah, this is a play for power. <laughs> you know, it's one thing if if it's one thing if the donate donors give you eleven million because they are they're obviously buying some quid pro quo with that money. They want something in return. But if you're spending your, but this isn't of the course. first time we've seen that. Look at all the pre third party presidential candidates that have spent millions. You know, Steve Forbes, for example. Ross Pro, they cut Michael yeah. Bloomberg. Another, I wouldn't surprise if he does this um, again. Yeah. So this to me is just vanity and power. Am I allowed to curse on your podcast? You are. Go ahead. Am I allowed to curse? You, yes, you can. <laughs> <'Cause> here's <laughs> the thing. There's a there's a so you were talking about uh, before the show started. You talked about how you have a master's in philosophy. Yeah. And I was telling you about how I uh, I really appreciate the philosophy and that I wanted to get a, you know, I wanted to major in philosophy myself before I quit college because I didn't want to do all the prerequisites. <laughs> but uh, I, I love philosophy. But, but the funny thing is, is my, my top level, this is going to sound probably kind of stupid to some people, my top level philosopher, my number one person that I look up to for the way that they saw the world is George Carlin. These people... These people are efficient, professional, compulsive consumers. That's their, they think of that as, their, as the, the, their national pride. It's their civic duty, consumption. It's the new national pastime. Fuck baseball. It's consumption. The only true, lasting American value that's left, buying things. 
buying things. People spending money they don't have on things they don't need. Money they don't have on things they don't need. So they can max out their credit cards and spend the rest of their lives paying 18% interest on something that costs $12.50. And they didn't like it when they got it home anyway. Not too bright, folks. Not too fucking bright. But if you talk to one of them about this, if you isolate one of them, you sit them down rationally, and you talk to them about the low IQs and the dumb behavior and the bad decisions, right away they start talking about education. That's the big answer to everything. Education. They say, we need more money for education. We need more, more, more books, more teachers, more classrooms, more schools. Uh, we need more testing for the kids. You say to them, well, you know, we've tried all of that, and the kids still can't pass the test. They say, oh, don't you worry about that. We're going to lower the passing grades. And that's what they do in a lot of these schools now. They lower the passing grades so more kids can pass. More kids pass, the school looks good, everybody's happy, the IQ of the country slips another two or three points, and pretty soon all you'll need to get into college is a fucking pencil. <laughs> Got a pencil? Get the fuck in there, it's physics. Then everyone wonders why 17 other countries graduate more scientists than we do. We have to stop electing these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about you. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they don't give a hell fuck about you. They don't care about you. And and that's, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, it's absolutely true. And, and people just like, I think there's something about this. You know, another one of Carmen's things that I just posted yesterday was he calls it the American okey-doke. It's this idea that everything is going to be fine, you know, mm -hmm. and he talks about all the myths, all the myths that we accept as a society that, that truly we know at some level is, are, is bullshit thing to believe, but, but we believe it anyway. And, you know, his, his list is really funny because he's like, you know, the press is free, uh, you know, the cops are on your side, right, right. <laughs> all these myths, uh, your vote matters or your vote, your vote counts. Um, so he goes through all these things and, 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 you know, his point being that, uh, you know, again, it gets, it gets back to the normalcy bias. People want to believe that things, you know, are a certain way or can be at least, or are very close to being a certain way. Mm -hmm. But it's like, uh, you know, in my past, I've read a lot, uh, uh you know, like Saul Alinsky, for example, and, uh, Alinsky says things such as, uh, you know, to, we need to embrace the world as it is, not as we wish it were. That's true. Right. Yeah. And we're taking a look at Newt Gingrich and a name that he keeps mentioning over and over in speeches and interviews. The name is Saul Alinsky. Listen. The centerpiece of this campaign, I believe, is American exceptionalism versus the radicalism of Saul Alinsky. I could debate Obama head to head, that I could convey conservative values, and that I could, in an articulate way, explain what American exceptionalism was all about and why. Uh, the values that he believes in, the Saul Alinsky radicalism that is at the heart of Obama. I am going to represent the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the great heroes of American history. He will represent Saul Alinsky, European socialism, secular radicalism, and all the ideas he got at Harvard and Columbia. Okay, first of all, nothing wrong with getting ideas at mm. Harvard and Columbia, mm. by the way. But also, people listening are like, huh, who's Saul Alinsky? Well, the, the speaker mentions Saul Alinsky often, especially when he's talking about President Obama and what Speaker Gingrich believes to be his radical liberal beliefs. So we wanted to ask, who's Saul Alinsky? He's a guy who was born in Chicago in 1909. He was a community organizer, just like young Barack Obama uh, in Chicago as well. He spent his life helping minorities in poor neighborhoods exert their political force by organizing them to get to the polls. But Alinsky is probably best known for a book that he wrote, which is called Rules for Radicals. And he's referring to Machiavelli's The Prince, and he wrote this. The Prince was written by Machiavelli for the haves to hold power. 
Rules for Radicals. His book is written for the have-nots on how to take it away. And, and that is the key, I think, to, to all of this stuff is the first step in my candidacy as, as, a, as a Congress you know, candidate, and especially being an independent, you know, which forces people to actually have to investigate what you believe instead of just going, oh, they're a deer, oh, they're an R, so blah, 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 and then they right. vote. Um, it, but so the big key is to is on my end is to educate. You know, I'm trying to help people understand what is happening mm-hmm. um, and give them the opportunity to have dialogue about that thing, whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, on any given subject, so that so that we can make informed decisions about what we're going to do as a country moving forward. Because as it sits, you know, with partisanship playing the role it has, what my my core belief. That got me to run for Congress. My core belief, um, and I, you know, it's hard to get across to some people all the time because there's a bit of a partisan um, uh, Stockholm syndrome, if you will. Uh, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> but, true. But my core belief is that the two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, use wedge issues like gays, God, guns, uh, abortion. Uh, uh, immigration, even healthcare at this point is a bit of a wedge issue, um, and these sorts of things. And, and they use these things to to garner support for their candidacy and their party, and and maybe more importantly, to get get uh, people against the other side, mm-hmm. right? And then and then when they get in the office, the truth is, and I I I wholeheartedly believe this is true. Those two parties do not want to do any of the things they promised on any of those wedge issues because if they actually stepped up and if, for example, if the Democrats went in and did, did massive gun reform, like they, like they always talk about wanting to do and it actually passed and everything else, they would not be able to use that to win the next election or the one after that. So the whole point and what they're doing is a grift. They're, they're, they are using these issues to get support, and they are and they are never ever. They do not intend on ever addressing any of the problems that they run on, because they want to keep using that into the future. Adam and I, so that that to me is is the key to understanding all this stuff. I think that's true to an extent, but not a hundred percent always true. Like I do think the right has done a fairly decent job of pushing abortion. Uh, we have definitely lost. Uh, yeah, there is a little there. bit of a, of a disconnect on on the on the religious stuff. Yeah, uh, because the you know the religious people, um, the hardcore. Yeah, yeah they they they're gonna they're gonna turn on people who don't support them. You know, their their hardline abortion I, I and uh, anti gay stances. Point. But, um, I yeah. do get your point. The spirit yeah. of it, for sure. Um, so. Um, you are an independent and you do view both parties as being corrupted by power and they're both problematic. And I can, grant, I can definitely grant that. Although I've um, never supported Republicans, I have a lot of criticism, as you know, for the Democrats. I think they're um, mm-hmm. just as guilty of um, engaging in power donor politics and doing things that are not, Absolutely. not in, um, not in congruency with their prime, um, issues at all for example i think environmental factors well, they could do they, a lot they, more in that area and they choose not yeah to. well and i think 
I think they're actually, if, if you could imagine, in many ways, I think they're actually less honest than the Republican less, Party. No, is. you know what? I will grab that. Because, they are less honest because they pretend to be something that they're actually not time and time again. That's Whatever. right, and Republicans own it. They're just like, yeah, yeah we're, we're yeah. working for the rich people because trickle down on you and uh-huh. whatever. You know? No, fair. No, I think that's a fair <laughs> criticism. So let me ask you a question. Do you, um, for this reason, do you think that ranked choice voting is a good idea? Is this a possible solution? Yes, I like I like the idea behind ranked choice voting. Okay. Um, but but honestly, honestly, um, the big issue is, and this is the thing that I uh, put on your tinfoil hat for a minute, because I don't know that any of this stuff is actually true. I don't know that this is actually true, but it's something that makes me think all the time. Uh-huh. So I'm not going to declare that I know this to be true or anything like that. But here's the thing: we have machines counting our votes mm-hmm. um, that are owned by private companies That's right. that are, that there's almost no accountability for how they, how they work or where your vote goes once you put it into this machine or what happens to it after it leaves. Um, and so, yeah, ranked choice voting is a great idea, but until we actually secure our regular voting and we know for sure that 100% of how those votes were intended to be cast is how they were cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really matter what we change the system to because mm-hmm. they can use those machines to manipulate any, potentially right. manipulate any, um, any vote. And okay. and the truth is, you know, look at all the money that these oligarchs put into, uh, you know, running our democracy from the, from the standpoint of buying all the politicians and lobbying them in Congress and mm-hmm. elsewhere to get what they want, right? right? Do you really think, and this is the thing that your, your listeners could think about, do you really, really think that with all that money they're putting in, if they couldn't just buy the vote directly, do, do you think they wouldn't? Like, if they, could, if they actually could just buy it, yeah. do you think they wouldn't just buy it? Oh, look, the corporations right? would love to live in a straightforward corporate oligarchy. It would save them money. I... That's right. So, so this idea that you know, that, oh, it can't happen here is nonsense. It is nonsense. Uh, so, you know who agrees with you on that very problem is Ruben Major. I don't know if um, you are familiar. He ran for Secretary of State on uh, election mm-hmm. integrity. That's, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, Ruben Major. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. Uh, yeah. So, one of the things that Ruben believes um, is that you can't you can't come up with a good ranked choice voting system because it requires computers. You can't do it with paper ballots. So he's worried about this thing that you're talking about. He, he, in fact, I had him on the podcast and he he goes in depth about the computers. Um, this cute computer software is owned by these private corporations and the um, state officials do not have direct access to the code because it's computer- that's insane. Is yeah. that completely it's insane? Totally, it's totally oh my insane. God. Yeah. So you should listen to the Ruben major. If you haven't um, folks listen to the Ruben major episode because it's very eye opening. Um, and you know, the ACLU. Well, is- I, I still think you could do, you could do ring choice with the paper ballot. I would think because all you'd have Apparently to do is like, put a number really next to you. It's really complicated. Um, I hear what you're saying and I'm sure there's a way around it, but it, it apparently a lot of the folks that want to um, institute ring choice voting, uh, are wary of the paper thing because of the way mathematically the probabilities of like if you have 10 choices and which i sort of guess you'd have to do to- run a total probability calculus which would uh, be very yeah so like my point is, is it's not necessarily to get rid of the voting machines but we have to take take control of them and if you know if there's a mathematical and um, engineering way to do that like this guy you know from microsoft uh tends to believe then i think that's the right 
you know, that's what we could do. So you think corporations should pay back taxpayers when their employees are paid so little that they qualify for various welfare programs such as food stamps? And I completely yes. agree with this. As far as I'm concerned, this is the cost of doing business. Paying inadequate pay to your employees is simply a cost of doing business. And when they say that they can't afford it, it is just a bullshit thing. Corporations have become ever increasingly more profitable. So they're making more mm-hmm. profits now than they ever have. And and their upper management and their um, uh, CEOs, et cetera, are paid, you know, exorbitant pays. That, so there's a way to do this. You have to cut the pay of the CEOs and mm-hmm. you have to lose a little bit in profits. But to me, this is this is uh, something they should be doing. And actually, just to digress for one second, I think, uh, you know, my listeners have heard me talk about this. One of one of the problems that we're experiencing in late-stage capitalism right now is the fact that, um, you know, corporations exist to create profit. That's their main motivation. There's no two ways about that. Correct. And if they can pay labor less money, they're going to do that. That's just how that's just their motivation. In the past, they've had to worry about worker pay. When I say in the past, I mean prior to the 1950s. They had to worry about worker pay because... Right, because workers need expendable income in order to buy the goods that are produced. If Correct. you have no one to sell your widgets to, the entire system collapses, right? So this is right. really important stuff. Well, they created credit, which created a lot of expendable income, but that's completely tapped out. And then globalization happened, so they could expand into other markets outside of the United States without having to increase worker pay. Or they that's, could get well, worker pay cheaper. Overseas, that's right, right, yeah. But now we're at a particular junction where neither of those solutions uh, have any more space to run. We've pretty much played those two things out. So Yeah, that's the late-stage capitalism thing. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is at a certain point, you would imagine that these corporations would say to themselves, well, if we don't increase worker pay and we're not selling our goods, we're going to have problems. You know, the writing's (laughs) on the wall. But... But if, if the taxpayer uh, continues to subsidize that that for them, they're, they're just going to keep doing it, which is what we're basically doing. If we say to a corporation, you pay your person you know, $7 an hour, even though you can't pay for rent on $22 an hour in the city of Los Angeles, we'll right. just have the taxpayer make up the difference, right? Right. So um, I think you're correct in this. So what is the problem here, right? Um, and, and the problem with these people getting, you know, getting welfare and stuff while working um, for Walmart or Amazon or anybody like that, any company like that, um, is that, you know, they're working full time and they still require uh, welfare and everything else. That's unfair to them. But on top of that, it's unfair to the taxpayers, um, which again, I'm an MMT guy. I'm an MMT guy, so it's not a big deal, you know, not that big of a deal to me. But like California itself can't, it's not a sovereign um, state, so it can't um, print its own money. So, <clears throat> so uh, it, it makes a big difference in California that it may not make on the federal level. But regardless, it's a matter of fairness. It's a principle, and and it's just simply not fair for the government, you know, which is supposed to be representing people, to be subsidizing the workforce for private, profitable private corporations like that. You know, it, and so the example I gave, I think, was from 2015, and Walmart profited like 16 billion dollars that year. And um, you know, they pay or taxpayers, if in general, whether it be state, federal, however you want to look at it, um, they they ended up putting in 6.2 billion dollars in welfare in the forms of housing, uh, medical, and and 
you know, food subsidies for their, for their employees. And it's like, you know, take that $6.2 billion away from them then and redistribute it back out to those governments that had to, you know, pay it in. And then, um, because, because I mean, by the way, $9.8 billion is still good. Like you still made a lot of money. You're all right. But it also, you know, it, it handles a couple of other things too. this, this idea, because, um, you know, number one, it would, you know, dropping their profit from 16 billion to 9.8 billion would hurt their stock value, which is a lot of what they base, what they get paid on the, on the basis of anyway. So, um, because of that, they would definitely want to, you know, try and absorb as much of that of the, you know, basically they would want to prevent this money from coming out of the profits at the end of the year. They would want to, um, pay their workers enough to keep them off of welfare. And, um, in that case, the money would probably come from the executives and shareholders and however, you know, up there at the top of the executives and, you know, high end pay in the company to make sure that it gets, it gets covered down below because, um, they want to keep their stock value high, you know, because that's a big part of their income. And, and in doing that, you know, you already start to address, um, the things that are ailing our, our, you know, poor and our working working classes and things like that. Because um, that's a thing that would always, you know, provided that the welfare laws, you know, the, the laws that determine who does and doesn't get welfare, which by the way are not good enough even now um, in most states. Um, but but this is a good starting point. But it would make sure that as you know, as living conditions and you know got more expensive and things like that, and those welfare programs adjusted as they are meant to. Um, for those living conditions, that uh, it, it's essentially ensuring a minimum wage that meets the local needs. Um, because, like a $15 national minimum wage is fine, but if you live in Manhattan, it doesn't do you any good. Like you could, you're still homeless on $15 an hour in Manhattan. So, um, so you know, so uh, it, it localizes in a way the uh, the minimum wage you know, pretty heavily. And I think that that's, that's a good way to do it without even having to, to fight every, every, however many years for, to raise this minimum wage again, we could just pass this law and more or less fix it. You set a, you set a basement by using our existing welfare laws. So I think that that's a, a good way to do it. And well, I think, you know, the 39th district has some exceedingly wealthy areas in it where $15 an hour isn't going to uh-huh. cut it either. So, yeah, you're right about New York, but there are uh, are definitely even local areas where 15. I mean, you, in, yeah. um, Santa, Santa Ana is, you know, there's a huge, huge homeless encampment there. It's frightful. And, you know, we have a big uh-huh. homeless problem here in L.A. There's just no affordable housing. You cannot pay. I mean, the average studio rental now is twenty four hundred dollars a month. Here, you can't you can't, do the math. Yay. How are you? How are you going to feed yourself and pay rent? On? I mean, a studio is like what four hundred five hundred square feet. It's nothing. Yeah, I know our California state government is such a nightmare too. Like the thing is, is um, I, I've come to believe that any state, you know, as much as I think both parties are are, are the source of the problem, and, and that's kind of my my slogan at the moment is the parties are the problem. But, as much as I believe that's true, um, I also believe that whenever any one party has complete control, like, you know, more or less monopolistic or, or however you want to put it, dynasty type control over any given state, um, that it all comes apart uh, well, truly, anyway. It's you know? one giant monopoly anyway, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> 
Yeah, of course, of course, that's true. But at least they have to fight <laughs> out on some things. Like to have to have, they do have to fight it out on, even if it's on on minor details and stuff. When well, it's uh, when it's two parties like that are close. See- yeah, in California, what I'd actually, actually like to see is a lot of these establishment conservative Democrats just leave the party and become Republicans because that's what they are at the end of the day. I mean, they're thwarting the voice of progressives in the state big time. They are uh, probably the well, and I, I, I understand. I do understand. Yeah, I do understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go ahead and say this. Yeah. Um, here's a philosophical thing for you. Uh, one of my best friends, and he was helping me with my campaign, and he'll continue doing so is a, a, a guy named Pietro, and I've known him for a very long time from my, my work industry of motorcycle journalism and, and photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes from Italy. He's Italian, and he has a major, his, his bachelor's degree is in American history, believe it or not, which he got in Italy. Huh. Um, and he also got uh, his master's in Italy, which is political science. He has a master's mm-hmm. in political science. And so he advises me a lot, and we sit around and we talk about stuff. And... Um, you know, he was the first one to point out to me a bunch of years ago, a few years ago, as we were talking about all these problems that we face, that uh, parties are not ideological. No, <laughs> so, he's right. So his point they is, his point is, is purpose, that yeah. that's right. They, they they adopt our ideologies in order to gain our our loyalty and our support. I agree. But they don't actually have any ideology. So when people, I, I bristle just a little bit, um, and it's it's kind of technical minutiae in a lot of ways, but I bristle a little bit when people say they might as well be Republicans, so they might as well be Democrats, because those parties don't mean anything. Like the, the title, you know, a lot of people I, sit around think, and talk about... You know, uh, I, Steve, I think you're right. I yeah. don't think that these two things are mutually exclusive. I think you're... What, so my point no, no I, but is, I understand what you're yeah. saying. It's one monopoly party. I mean, they both serve the same donor class. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, of course. But it's that yeah, very but, but thing it's that drives... That. That's, but that's the very thing that drives the conservative Democrats to fight the progressives in the party. I mean, the progressives are I- ideologically different from the establishment corporate Dems in the same way that they're ideologically different from Republicans. I think that's my bigger point, if that makes sense. Yes, I agree. And, and you know, I, there's a meme going around that I really love. It's just like that um, liberals hate progressives more than right. uh, conservatives. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> You know, That's so true. But, but it's totally true. It is so uh, true. They're more know, threatened by us because yeah. even if you're an independent, you know, I mean, I think a lot of, I would say the vast majority of left-leaning folks are independent, not Democrats at this point. Um, I know in California, the NPP, which stands for No Party Preference, is the largest block yeah. um, of voters yeah. in the state. So, and, you know, they're not being served. Yeah, the it's about 40% in my district, too. Yeah, oh, I believe it. And they're not being served by either party. That's why they choose to be NPP. And I think... Um, well, I mean, neither are the two, neither are the Democrats or the Republicans. They just haven't figured it out True. yet. <laughs> fair. You know, um, <laughs> also I wanted to bring up right now, I'm on my alumni board for UC Irvine. Uh, we have a food bank on campus because... Uh-huh. Which is just astonishing to me because, you know, I, I attended the UC system at a time when it was still subsidized almost entirely by the state. Now, you know, 8%, 9% of the budget is coming from the state of California. So do the math on that. It might yep. as well be a private university. So when Bernie Sanders talks yep. about, you know, public education, uh, university, mm-hmm. public universities being funded, I, I concurly agree with him. I think this is an investment in our society 
um, in the best possible way we can make one because a more educated population gets better jobs, thinks better, doesn't commit crime. I mean, there's a whole host of things attached to that, but yet here we are. And, you know, there's a Carlin, there's a Carlin quote about that too. He talks about, you know, (laughs) he says, he says, education, politicians know that word. They use it on you. Politicians have traditionally hidden behind three things, the flag, the Bible and children, no child left behind, no child left behind. Oh, really? Well, it wasn't long ago. You were talking about giving kids a head start, head start left behind. Someone's losing fucking ground here. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks. And it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, the wealthy, that... The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. But we don't have any money for education. He says, you know, if we continue down this path in 50 years, uh, you know, we're not going to have anybody who's smart enough to join the military. You know, the thing is, and it, there are so many different aspects to this, but, but from a philosophical standpoint, I always start from my base philosophy and and what when i figured out my base philosophy um i started sort of applying that to everything in the world around me um and so what what i am at my core um what i believe at my core is that with a very small percentage of like psychopaths and sociopaths put aside all people are good mm-hmm. they're naturally good they want to do the good, the right things. They know right from wrong pretty intrinsically. Um, they, they, they're good. You know, people are good. And uh, it, it's just that they're also, you know, there's a lot of other things about them. There's normalcy biases and other biases. There's, there's a, a, a desire to believe, um, you know, things that make you feel better rather than things that don't. 
You know, uh, you, you want to believe things that, that make you, um, uh, you know, okay with whatever's going on. It's right. that okie doke thing again, because because at that point you don't have to worry about actually doing anything about it. Because anybody with, you know, I think most people are very moral. And if, if as a moral human being, I don't think most people can look at what's going on with our government and our world if they truly understood it. I don't think they could look at it and think, oh, it's fine. Right. You know, and that, that ultimately comes down, that, that's where I end up. And that that's, you know, when I figured out, when I believe I figured out the core to this problem, you know, the fact that these, these parties literally don't want to do the things that they say that, they, that they're going to do and that, it, you know, the two parties agree on 90 plus percent of everything. You know, anytime it's something bad, where it's, you know, supporting Wall Street and banks, supporting oil industry and, um, you know, supporting endless warfare and pharmaceutical industry and all these things, the parties overall support all those things together. So um, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not an us versus them thing from left to right. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, or, or even from right to right, I guess, would be in Democrats versus Republicans. But, but uh, but it's it's you know ninety nine percent versus uh, versus one percent or even ninety nine point nine percent versus one tenth of one percent. Um, that's the true two sides of any of these yes. things. So starting from that perspective and starting from the perspective of, of belief in my fellow human being and, and all this stuff, the the education thing, it is just dumb. It is dumb yeah. to make it so that the smart people, the people that can go to college. Um, the people that do go to college are are only going to be the small percentage of people whose parents can afford it or who yeah. they believe, you know, or, or, or who the the students actually are, you know, smart enough or close enough to the to that living lifestyle type of thing mm-hmm. that they believe they'll be able to overcome the debt um, that they're going to incur and everything else in order to, to, to get through college and, and head out into the world. The, yeah. You know, I always yeah. use Jonas Salk as an example. He, he created the, the polio vaccine or he discovered yeah. the polio vaccine. He gave it away, mm-hmm. by the way. That's right. So imagine that shit nowadays. Yeah, right. uh, you know, well, that's because he didn't like have a major corporate that would have been the most expensive. <laughs> imagine how much money that we would have had to pay for that if it oh, was yeah. like the, you know, how yeah, it is now, it's, right? Yeah, no. Like a, It'd be d- yeah, just it's a insane, <laughs> Yeah, but he, but Jonas Salk is a great example because he was the son of ru- poor Russian Jewish immigrants. That's right. Um, his entire education was paid for um, through the government yep. or or other means, but he didn't have to pay for any of it himself. And in the end, saved very literally billions of lives. Yeah. You know, if, at this point, if you if you follow that logical trajectory, and on top of that, the the science that he proved in discovering the polio vaccine led to so many other discoveries for other vaccines and other sort of, uh, you know, other cures for other diseases and, and this and that. So over the course, like from the point that he discovered that thing, you know, it's got to be billions of lives that have been saved by, by that discovery. Absolutely. And it was all done because this guy was bright and he had opportunities to go to school regardless of the income potential or, or income or, or wealth of his parents. Um, or his own income potential after he graduated. Mm-hmm. And that is the key to any society to me. Like that is the point is that you want to build a society that's smart and that works together and, and all this stuff. But, you know, a, a, I, I, I hate to do it, but I keep returning to Carlin. You know, the, <laughs> 
the, the, uh, in one of his other more famous bits about this, he says, he says, everybody always talks about education, education, education. He says, yeah. but you know, it's not going to get any better. Be careful. Be thankful for what you got, because the owners of this country don't want that. The yeah. owners, yeah. he says, I'm talking about the real owners, but, you know, they own all the politicians, the media, everything else. And he says, he says, they want people who are just smart enough to do the paperwork and, you know, do the jobs and just dumb enough to passively accept the dropping wages and lowering benefits and uh, pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. he says, that, yeah. that's the game. So, so the point is, is that education, until we prioritize, we reprioritize our country, um, you know, away from this idea that profit is always the point, that we always have to have growth in order to be, um, you know, successful. Or even that the, a human's value is based off of the the money that's in their checking or investment accounts. You know, the, the value is an intrinsic thing, I believe, that all human beings have equally at birth. Mm-hmm. We are all, and I, and it doesn't matter what line in the sand some politician drew, called it a border, and put you on the other side, or or anything like that. People have rights. All That's people right. have rights, yeah. and 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 those things, uh, you know. You you get those at birth, and that's Natural what the founders rights. of this country that's actually right. believe. You put you put us that's right. That's you put us you put aside the hypocrisy concept, of audience. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But you put a, put aside the the hypocrisy, which I know is not a, a small thing, um, but it, you know a very large hypocrisy of owning slaves while they while they said these. Um, you know the truth of it is is I still believe that they were right in the core concept. I think that they were correct. That that you know everywhere in the Bill of Rights it says the people. It doesn't yeah. say the citizens. It doesn't say, you know, so so once we get to the point that we understand that human beings um, are valuable at the point of birth, that they are equally valuable, um, regardless of any any mitigating factors that we consider as a society, whether it's wealth or, or race or you know, gender or, uh, you know, eventually their, their sexual orientation or, or religion or anything, but that they're all equal. Um, until that, that point comes across philosophically, I feel like this is all going to be a very uphill battle, you know, because that is the core to everything that, uh, you know, and I'm a fan so far of uh, AOC and, and whatnot, but that's the core to understanding AOC and Bernie and people like this, I believe, is that, is that they need to, you know, they understand that people are all worth something. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. they're all worth the same thing. And that Donald Trump is not worth more. Than, than a homeless guy in the corner in Santa Ana. Mm-hmm. He's just not. He's, I don't give a crap, you know, not. what job he has. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, but it's universal, right? Well, so uh, yeah. another core point of my philosophy is that, is that nobody, <laughs> nobody, is, nobody is better than me. And the core point of my philosophy is nobody is better than me. I'm also not better than anybody else. You know, so so when I look at people like Donald Trump, I have no problem going up against, you know, the wealthy and the powerful. Sir, you know, people Steve, that are sir, considered I such. Here. I think there are people that are better than Trump, yeah. including you. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I really don't. I, I mean, you know, he might fall into that category of sociopath or something like that. Oh, he that, that I talked falls about into earlier, that category. That, you know, <laughs> but, 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 you know, but I just, you know, the point is, is like. You're egalitarian. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just don't, I don't believe. Yeah, I don't believe that that um, you know he, he's. Yeah, he, I 
certainly don't believe he's better than any of us, if you put it that way. And and our society is structured as such that there's somebody like that with, you know, you know, most of that wealth. Yeah, inherited because that's from capitalism. Yeah, he didn't even create this wealth. He's lost yeah, well, a lot of money. I mean, the, the only like two hundred million of it. Right, he's a self-made man. Is bullshit. It's like, come on, he's so not. Of a course, man. Um, well, which, by the way, uh, lately I've been thinking a lot about this. And I'm going to put it out here right yeah. now, right now, and I, I'm going to say that I don't have the particulars nailed down. I usually don't open my mouth before I have my particulars nailed down, but uh, but I'm going to go ahead and do that here. Okay. The, I haven't done anything on my website about inheritance taxes. I mean, I, I talked a little bit about it mm. um, in one of my sections, but I didn't really take a stand because it was hard for me to understand. But okay. I've now come to the, since, since I wrote all that stuff, I've now come to the position that inheritance tax has to become a major thing. And I'm talking like, oh, I you know, I, I would say like, uh, a million dollars, like the first million that, that a, a child of a person inherits whatever in value, um, like we can more or less keep our hands off of that, you know, because I want, you, like, yeah, if I'm looking I at California, I want I want kids to get a house from their parents if that's the way it is right, or something right. like that. Right. But, um, you know, but ultimately, like, I, I wouldn't even mind banning inheritance above a certain number or whatever that is. Like, there's got to be a point. Where, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that from a soci- sociological standpoint, that is a big part of our problem is it's not the first generation, often not the first generation of wealthy people like the Henry Ford of the world that actually achieves something and goes into business and figures something out and makes a bunch it's of a money. Um, yeah. But it's his kids mm-hmm. and the kids below, below that who've never seen life as a regular person That's who right. has no way of identifying those are the, if you will, the problem, you know, in quotes. Like that, that yeah, to me is the social problem. That, yeah, yeah, because it's not the Let me get back to one question. Sure. Why do you think the Walton family needs a $52 billion tax break? My guess is that you're, you're basing that assertion on the only tax detail that we have in the budget. The repeal of the estate tax. Of the, uh, exactly. Right. Um, and if we want to have a talk about why we're repealing that, I'd be more than happy to do Good. that. Good. Let's tell me. Because ordinary people are paying more. No, ordinary people do not have a wealth of $128 billion. The average, That's not an ordinary person. The average increase across this nation since You're not the answering the question. The is question 105%. is, the, answer the question. The wealthiest family in America gets a $52 billion tax break as a result of the appeal of the estate tax. That's correct. Tell the American people why you think that's good when you cut Medicaid and you cut programs for kids. We, we, we don't cut Medicaid. We're talking about repealing Obamacare. The results Throwing that you mentioned. Throwing 23 million people off of health insurance. That's right. The, the, which is a CBO number that I think you just agreed could be wrong. At the no, I didn't agree to meeting. that at all. Okay. That we repeal Obama. Why does a billionaire family get a $52 billion tax break? Because Please we, tell the American people. Because we think it's wrong that real ordinary folks lose coverage. And we want to get rid ordinary of Ordinary people. Is yes. the Walton family an ordinary family? Uh, no, they're not. They're extraordinary. But ordinary people are losing coverage today under Obama. I ask you why the wealthiest it. family in America is getting a $52 billion and tax break. And I'm asking the question by saying because we repeal Obamacare. No, you and the estate tax, which applies to the top two tenths of one percent. Um, Senator, okay, if that, if that well, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought the assumption was we were looking at the tax, the, the tax reductions that are contained in Obamacare. Report. No, that's not what we're, we're talking about. No, tax. no, no. Okay, we're talking about the repeal of the estate tax, which All you right. just mentioned. Um, the budget assumes a deficit-neutral tax plan because when we wrote the budget, we did not have nearly enough specifics to assume what you're assuming, which is the specific reductions. Yes. 
the proposals that the White House published about three or four weeks ago, the principles that we set forth does include a reduction of the estate tax. Repeal of the estate tax, sir. He said, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It is a repeal of the estate tax, but I think it's it's mathematically impossible to take those general principles and assume a direct impact on a particular family. You no, can't that's do it. Not Nobody can do it. I've, I've seen estimates from groups that say, oh, it's going to no, add not, that's, by $2 trillion to $10 trillion. People no, just That's really not numbers. true. I mean, we don't know when people are going to be dying, that's for sure. But you can I'm make sorry, those you, estimates. We don't know that people are going to no, be dying? No, you don't know when somebody is going to be dying. But okay. the truth is okay. that if the family is worth 100 so I'm pretty sure they're going to die eventually. That we can be pretty okay. sure of. Well, at least we agree on something. Thank you. Senator Graham. <laughs> that was borderline fascinating. Uh. <laughs> because it's not the idea of hard work getting you anywhere. None of these folks have ever worked hard in their lives for anything. It's legacy wealth. I agree with you. Yeah. So when it, that's why I always chuckle when people say, just work hard and you'll be rich. I'm like, no. No, okay. <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> like, Come on, really? <laughs> Let me I mean, I worked. About, like, I could tell you this. I made a lot more money. I made. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I made a lot more money uh, as a, as a photojournalist as I ever did in a, than I ever did when I was a roofer, and I guarantee you, I worked a lot harder as a roofer. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. Or like, you know, you this know. idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots. I mean, it's just a bullshit concept. That's right. We all have various social starting true. places. It's, there's no egalitarianism involved in that. And, and you know, we can have a conversation about um, equality of opportunity, equal access to equality of opportunity versus, uh, um, you know, our various social starting places. Because we, we're never going to get to a place where everybody's exactly entirely equal. This is an impossible dream. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something to sort of provide equal access to opportunity. And we're not doing that in this country at all, even though that's one of the strong premises that this uh, country was built on. We don't do it. We haven't achieved it. And in fact, we've gotten further away from that point in the last 50 years. Okay. Another mantle you have uh, taken up that I wanted to talk with you about is veterans' rights. Uh, so veterans veterans are yeah. paid, paid very little for the sacrifices that they give this country, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think they receive um, inadequate health care when they return from tours of duty. I think they don't get anywhere near enough mental health support. And then meanwhile, um, in contrast to that, we have the military industrial complex with gobs of money. I mean, our defense budget is, is mm -hmm. absolutely fucking ridiculous, in my opinion. So to me, this is just a moral, it's a moral travesty. It's like, it's just so gross. I but at least the Democrats have been, at least the Democrats have been voting against all these increases in defense money, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except that they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> I note your sarcasm. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last, the last thought you were dollars, the last, <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I, this happens to me a lot because I have a dry, sarcastic sense of humor. Yeah, no, that's why and, uh, I got So, like, Aussies and Brits usually get me really quickly, but uh, sometimes yeah, yeah. with Americans, they, there's, they, there's they don't catch on. And it's easier right with your face to face with them. That's right. So, so yeah, but, but, but 17, the last, I can tell you right now, straight up, straight from memory, the last $17 billion defense increase that just went through uh, about six or eight weeks ago, whatever yeah. it was. Um, there was, uh, it was, it passed the Senate 93 to seven. Um, and the seven that voted against it were an independent from Vermont. I forget his name. Um, Who and, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, and six Republicans. Jesus. Okay. Let me guess. Rand Paul. So, yep. 
Uh, and I, and yeah, I think maybe Ben Sass was one of them, but I, I don't really know. But it was six Republicans, six Republicans, and Bernie, and then and then so every Democrat voted for it. So when you know on, on the online thing, when people were like he's not even a Democrat, I'm like, yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, I know. Yeah, wait, that slays me when the, when they say that. I'm like, he's not a real Democrat. Like this is like some sort of valid. Yeah, do you own yourself for a living? They like, own is this the thing you try to do? There are what eight? There are eight Democrats that have A ratings from the NRA, and they get down on Bernie for his D minus rating. It's so fucking stupid. I can't wrap my head around it. But here yeah. we are. Well, and and and, and I'm going to tell you what. Pretty disclosure, you know, I, and we'll get back to the point. But full disclosure, yeah, I, want to talk about I will the end up being. I'll, I'll end up. Yeah, the gun thing. I'll end up probably getting a good rating from the NRA. But I hate the NRA. Ooh. I hate them. I hate the. I hate the. Uh, uh, the gun rights organizations because that's not actually what they are. They, in my opinion, they they exist the same way that our parties do. In that, so it, it, to prove this point, after Sandy Hook, which was awful, and I was I was in a hotel room in Toronto when when that went down, and that's I was disgusting. working and I was on my laptop, and and I cried. I was by myself and I sobbed, it, like openly sobbed in my hotel room because all I could do was imagine being one of these poor little kids in this room. You know, like it must have been so incredibly terrifying and so awful. And uh, but but the thing is, is um, as a quick aside here, um, I'm just going to state this. The, the, the thing is, is that gun owners and gun rights people, they see a thing like Sandy Hook differently than um, than a non, you know, than the anti-gun side of things. Um, but nobody likes it, right? Nobody, you know, the. They I'm polarize sure the public I a little agree bit. With that, um, some of these um, amu amosexual, what do they call them? These totally like crazy gun nuts. I, I, they're not. Yeah, know. that's a that's a rare that's a rare thing in is reality. It, but I'm these, not sure that there it are, is. There are, but uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it is because the truth is, is that what happens in and it's something that I think we both have to start to understand about the sides on this, on this debate. What happens when, when, like my, I'll just put it this way. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to speak for other people. I'm going to speak for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a, in a gun owning household and all that stuff. I was around yeah. guns. So when I was a little kid, um, I was, my dad's a Marine, right? So we had guns around. They were just around the house. And, and I was probably mm-hmm. six or seven years old. The first time I went shooting with my father out in the oh, desert with my uncle and, and my dad and stuff like that. Of course. Um, but it was fine, right? And I was taught how to use the guns. I was taught how to respect the guns. And I was taught that they weren't toys and that they weren't something, you know. And I'm, I'm going somewhere that with this. I'm zipping. <laughs> I'm zipping. What? Finish. I said I'm giving you the respect to finish. I'm zipping my mouth. Zip, zip, go. Oh, okay, good. So, 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 so. Because I'm, uh, I'm sure you know that. But go ahead. I, I, no, I'm I know. Sorry. I know that. I know. And I get it. I totally understand. It. But I, I, I'm going somewhere. So the point yeah, is yeah, this. Go. So you get, you get to a point, you get to a point where, you know, when I was a kid, I did respect the guns. I didn't go near them. My dad didn't actually have to lock them up. They weren't in a safe because I wasn't going to touch them because I knew them. I was exposed to them. I, I used them um, with my father's supervision. And then. But it led to a thing where when I was about 10 years old, the first time that happened, I was staying the night at a friend's house, and one mm-hmm. of the kids in a slumber party found a firearm in the house. Yikes. Um, and all the other kids all the other kids started gathering around, and I wasn't really near there because I was playing video games, and I'm still a, a video game nerd. But um, <laughs> I, I, I was... But I, I came over and I was like, what's going on? You know, and I saw the gun and I immediately took it from the kid who had it. I, I, I 
took the, it was a semi-automatic handgun. I dropped the magazine out of it and I, I took the bullet out of the chamber because it, cha- it had one chambered. Oh and and then, um, and I took that stuff and I put it in, I put it in a, a safe spot. And I, and and then I didn't even care that they had the gun. I let them mess with it because it was harmless without bullets. So, you know, like you could throw it at somebody, but it ain't gonna hurt. You're not gonna shoot anybody. So, um, so I did that, and then I kind of went back about my day. And I didn't really realize the the implications of this until I was an adult. No, you know, like it, it was yeah. just a thing that happened. Yeah, um, but it happened again when I was like 12, uh, a second time at a different house with a with a rifle. You know, when when you understand the socioeconomics of of crime, and and how how crime is linked to socioeconomic inequality and things like that, and it's yeah. every type of crime. It's it's you know, um, and then you start to see the increasing inequality uh, in our society, and you just happen to see an increase in violence and crime. Ooh, isn't that weird? Ooh, I'm super <laughs> I'm super puzzled by how this is happening. Right. So the the, the thing is is I think it's it's not. I don't think it's a winning battle. Put it this way: I don't think it's a winning battle to ask gun owners to give up their gun rights um, in a time of this immense inequality that's getting worse. Because gun owners see this as dangerous. They see society as dangerous, and they want to protect their their family, their their children, um, and whatever else. Actually. And so, I, I, that's a valid. When point. there's a, when, yeah, so when there's a when there's a mass shooting and stuff, the majority of gun owners are just as upset, if not even more so, believe it or not, than than, uh, than <laughs> non-gun owners. The, the chief difference between what happens when a gun owner sees a mass shooting at a school, especially, or something like that, and a non, you know, an anti-gun or a non-gun owner sees it, is a, a gun owner or a non-gun owner or anti-gun person thinks, how did that person get these guns and how did they get into the school and how did they... So it's always about, you know, getting the guns uh, and you know, stopping them right, getting so, the guns in a way. Okay, so let me say this. But, um, but, but, but think... wait, hold on. So, but the gun owners, the gun owners' natural reaction. I'm just going to say this: the gun owners' natural reaction often is, "How was there nobody there to kill the person that had the gun?" That's what they think. Right. That's okay, their so initial reaction. Let me let me break down. I think there's. A, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Is what I'm trying to get at. I like, for example, uh, I think there's just way too many goddamn guns out there. I think. Um, <laughs> I think we, I think I'm not necessarily anti-owning a gun. I think there's a time and a place for owning a gun. I think there are valid reasons for owning a gun. I think where we um, go, uh, have gone estranged in a lot of ways is that there's no liability attached to gun ownership in the country at this point. And I think there really should be. For example, if you own a gun and the gun is used to commit a crime, I do think as the gun owner, you should be liable for whatever, even if you didn't commit the crime, because you allowed that firearm to get out of your possession. You weren't adequately... Um, taking care of it and taking your your um, obligations and responsibilities as a gun owner into um, account in an adequate way. In the same way that if, you know, like with car insurance, I think the reason car insurance works is because of the liability aspects. Um, having said that, is there a segment of the population that is 100% anti-gun? Yes. Do I understand um, why they are? I do. Because- so the, one of my primary one of my primary reasons, or probably my primary reason for running for office, um, is uh, well, to put it simply, is that I believe that if if somebody comes up in, in any society, if somebody comes up with what they believe, what they really have believe is the answer, what they really believe will fix things, if somebody comes up with 
that answer, they have a responsibility mm-hmm. to the society to step up and try and make it happen. Okay. Um, I think that's, that's how it goes and it doesn't matter what it is um, that you're dealing with, you know, it's, it's yeah. same as Jonas Fulkade, right? So, yeah. um, but, 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 you know, I, I think politically I have that, but my, but my next primary motivator is to represent the poor and the middle classes and um, because they're the, they're the classes that don't get representation um, at the at, at our government level, yeah. and um, the 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 one one of my major problems with this idea of having insurance for gun ownership is that that's a barrier um, for oh, poor yeah. people. So to... I was just let me clarify because I did lose you on there. I don't necessarily think it has to be a form of insurance. What I'm saying is there needs to be liability attached to gun ownership. I think once there's liability attached, you know, I get that. it fixes a lot of the problems because, I get, you know what I'm I saying? I get it, but, it, but what I'm saying is, is there's there's a lot of things about, um, I mean, being being impoverished, that, that these things hurt, you know? That, no, I don't disagree. Uh, I don't disagree. That's very valid. And, and I don't think that that's necessarily fair, you know, because you're... I don't want to put barriers up for the poor, you know, like I, during my, during my, um, uh, congressional campaign, my last one, I'll be starting up again in about a month and a half or so. Um, but in, during my last one, I got approached by, a uh, an organization that wanted to make us fossil fuel free by 2035. It's like a bill that's already been started in the house and they asked if I supported it. And I started asking them a bunch of questions about it. I asked them like, um, okay, so what do we do for poor people? Um, if we're going to be fossil fuel free, meaning nobody drives internal combustion engine uh, uh, cars anymore, and considering that, especially in California, most people commute um, in cars, uh, you know, and most people who do commute are poor middle class. Uh, I said, how are we going to make sure that those people get a Tesla because, um, or the equivalent, right? Because or better public transportation. Yeah, I hear you. Or whatever. Something, the point yeah. is, is to make people allowed to be mobile. Yeah. And and every question I had like this for this person who was approaching me, um, they had no answer. They go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I said, well, then I can't support your bill. And the thing is, is I know wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly that that climate change is is a is should be very close to, if not the top priority for anybody going into office right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the only one that might take a, a slight priority nation for our country is healthcare. You know, uh, in my opinion, yeah. but um, but the you know, if you if you don't have a plan in place to actually help the poor and the middle class, then I see most of these plans as just further um, furthering the divide between the the you know the wealthy and the and the non wealthy. You know, and so there has to be stuff like that inside of the bill in order for me to pledge my support, you know, mm-hmm. that, because it's not it's not going to do us any good to to make the poor poorer by forcing them to buy vehicles they can't afford or whatever, um, you know. And then in the end, I you know, how does that help our country? You know, and ultimately, I need to be representing our country too. So yeah, so Steve, speaking of the poor, we got a little bit um, off on this interesting tangent, which I think is, uh, you know, a good topic that we discussed. But I do want to get back a little bit to the veterans um, situations in the VA, because you do have a large um, body of work in this area. So talk a little bit about your plans to um, address veterans issues. You know, obviously, we're fighting the military uh, industrial complex. But I also think uh, yeah. Medicare for all, for example, would improve things a lot because veterans would obviously be covered under that plan in a much more efficient and better way than they are under the VA, right? Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, universal healthcare of some sort has got to be the basis of, of, of it, it will end up being the basis of a lot of this. The thing I think that people need to understand about veterans is whether you agree with the war or not, and I'm, I'm as much of a peacenik as you can imagine. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that we've been in a justifiable war since at least World War II. Um, and I don't believe that's going to change anytime soon. So, so I'm, you know, I like in my Twitter profile, the picture in, in there right now is I'm wearing a shirt that says I'm already against the next war. Um, because, you know, I am, you know, I, I, like that's the truth because I, I, I understand the thing. I, but, but even when you put that stuff aside, the truth of it is, is that the people who sign up, um, it's for the military, uh, they do so with good intentions. They do it because, because, you know, they've been told that this is an honorable thing to do, that, you know, that they've been sold on these ideas of fighting for freedom and democracy, which is bullshit, but that, you know, they buy it. And so you can't be mad at them, um, for, for basically believing something told to them, uh, by somebody who they should be able to trust, um, but they can't, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I have to separate those two things. Um, because, but, but the truth of it is, is that my dad, my dad, you know, he served three tours in Vietnam and the U.S. Marine Corps. And, um, you know, I've watched the PTSD eat him away over the years. I've, you know, I'm, he was not, I love my father, uh, but he, he, he had a lot of room for improvement in, in fatherhood. We'll put it that way. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, but I still love the guy, you know, more than anything. And, and, um, but, you know, after all his years struggling with PTSD and, and this sort of stuff, he, um, in, let's see, 19 or 2007, he was diagnosed with, uh, mantle cell lymphoma, which is a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that comes from Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam. And, um, so for the first couple of years, he was fighting that at City of Hope. Um, over in uh, Doherty, um, they the VA refused to give him like the coverage and the benefits that he deserved because they just claimed that it wasn't it wasn't their fault and all sort of stuff. So it took a fight for him to get his benefits, and he finally did eventually. And then after fighting that cancer now three times, putting it in remission three different times, losing his salivary glands to another cancer and his prostate to another cancer. So we're talking five cancers um, that he's fought off somehow with the help of City of Hope. Um, the VA, a uh, couple years ago when Obama was still in office, cut my father's disability benefits in half because they said he's less disabled now that his cancers are in remission. I, I, hang on. I can't wrap my head around It's this. really tough. Sorry. We can keep increasing but the defense really, budget, but we can't take care of the service. Of course. Like, like, I can't. This is so immoral and disgusting. This I just can't wrap It my is head absolutely head. immoral, and I'm sorry if I if I sound a little choked up, but it really bothers me. It should bother and, uh, you. It bothers um, me. And it's not just my father, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have a lot of other friends who served and my nephew just got out of the Marine Corps. Luckily he didn't have to go to work because he was an MP, but, um, which I, by the way, was by design. I made sure that he w went in and got a job as an MP. Yeah. Like I, I helped him with his, with his recruiter process and stuff to make sure, cause I did not want him going into any of these hell holes, um, you know, and coming back the way my dad did. Yeah. And, uh, um, 
you know, because nobody comes back from war whole. They, whether they're physically whole or not is a whole other thing, but they, nobody comes back the same as they left. And, yeah. you know, there, there's a human toll both on our side and the quote-unquote other side that, that, you know, you just can't ignore morally or, or ethically. And, um, and and as a, as another quick aside, there's a bunch of photos. I have a bunch of photos that I've told this to a few people. But on days when it's hard to go campaign, when it's hard to go campus neighborhoods and all this stuff, because I don't get paid. Right. Um, I'm an independent. I you know I tried to do it on no money last time. I'm going to have to get more money this time. But the um, you know I, I don't you know it's a, you, you got to be self motivated to do this stuff. Yeah. And um, you know on those days that I don't feel like doing it. I have a bunch of photos on my phone in a folder by themselves mm-hmm. that are pictures of children and babies that were killed by American bombs oh. and American munitions in the Middle East. And they're awful. Mm-hmm. They're, I wouldn't, I don't yeah. want anybody to see them. I've posted a few um, on Twitter and in discussions and stuff, but they are the mildest of the photos. I would never post the ones that are the real thing because you cannot unsee these things yeah. once you see them you you know you you have that now it's part of you and right. um and so you know i use that as motivation because i have to sometimes remember that it's not just about me it's not just about even my district or or even my country but there are people around the world who are affected by the policies that are put forth by people that we vote into office That's presumably right. and um and and so anyways so you know war is an awful thing but but you know, the people who put their lives on the line, the people who step up and put themselves in harm's way um, for this government and, and, you know, at least in their rhetoric or, or opinion, you know, for the people of this country is, uh, you know, what they believe when they do it. Um, they uh, uh, they deserve uh, to be taken care of. And, and even worse than that, if you really want to take it to a logical extent, um, what is that, like, what chances do any of us have in the government doing right by us? Mm-hmm. They're going to treat veterans who signed up and and acted, you know, in such a high capacity for the government, who who sacrificed so much for the same government. And if they get treated like yeah. trash yeah. after doing that, what chance do any of us have That's of getting right. a fair shake right. from this government, you know? It all comes around, and so so yeah, I have a lot of plans for for wanting to fix, and that's why I went straight to the federal level too, um, to run for office because I can't fix the VA for city council that's or right. uh, or state senate or, or anything like that, you know. Uh, but I need you know we need to fix it. Universal health care has got to be a part of it, and um, so and that'll help obviously everybody in our country. And I think that we, we people on this podcast will have a good understanding of that probably, but yeah. but the. Um, but, you know, once you take the healthcare part out of the VA hands, it starts to get a lot better there, too, because yeah. the veter- the VA can, can concentrate on just the, the benefits, you know, the, the disability and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and so it takes a lot off their plate, which I think is good. But, um, you know, the bottom line is, is it, you know, there's something I've been exploring, but I haven't figured out the percentages yet. But but I do think in principle it's a good idea. And that thing is... is setting a percentage of the military budget. First off, you have to reunify the military budget, our defense budget, with our um, military uh, and VA spending and all that stuff because that stuff is separated on the pie chart right. from the federal government. That's so the right. number the number we actually get 
is is you know for defense spending is much lower than it really is when you consider the amount of money we spend as a, in our government for the benefits for the veterans after they serve or and all that stuff because that's separated. But but we need to reunify that stuff so we can look at the numbers as they are. Um, and then oh, okay. I just wanted the one final thing is is to come up with a percentage that uh, of the military budget that has to go toward. The, the actual people, the, the military and, and, and the former military, you know, and said it that way. So that yeah. was my point. No, you bring up an interesting point. I just want to um, sort of clarify yeah. something for the listener. Um, the budget has, yeah. there's two separate sides to a budget. You have the mandatory spending and the discretionary spending. Right. So right. things on the mandatory side of the spending would be Social Security, Medicare, these things, right? Right. Things on the discretionary side. Yeah, they side, call it entitlements. Yeah, they're not entitlements, but yeah. <laughs> things on the yeah. discretionary well, I mean, side. They are entitlements, but, but, but philosophically, they are entitlements, but doesn't that mean you're supposed to get them? Like if you're entitled right. to it? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that... I get your point. I'm just but making anyway. fun of the, the people that want it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Want yeah, to yeah. Cut them, call... yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but yeah, the other yeah. side, the discretionary yeah. side, the discretionary spending, this is what Congress, this is their budgetary stuff. That's things like the defense budget. So uh, they, right. they can change that number if they want to, meaning. So I think that your yeah. point, the point you're bringing up, the reason I bring that up is I think it's a really valid thing that you're talking about that doesn't get discussed enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Because we don't get the real numbers, but but if we could, if we could set up a just you know the bulk of our of our spending goes to um goes to these private companies you know Boeing and right. and uh, uh Lockheed and and all this stuff and so um you know these people are in our government lobbying our politicians to make sure that we stay at war so that uh they can keep making products and and you know keep That's getting right. defense money and all this stuff and and uh you know it's 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 way, obviously way out of hand but the you know we need to we need to address that again. It's the Olinsky thing, but you know address the world as as it is, not as we wish it were. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I think, is to is to start to reunify these numbers, just so that the public can see what the real numbers are and see how it really breaks down. And if we could do it from there, and then and then divide out a percentage, whatever the percentage is, say half of discretionary spending has to go toward the actual military people or or something like that. Um, you know. Then that would change the dynamic entirely. It would raise, uh, you know, it would increase uh, pay for people in the military and their benefits after they leave, and all that stuff, which is all you know. I'm I'm in favor of, and then um, it, you know, by uh, correlation or however you want to put it, the the private companies would also have to get cut a little bit, which is also fine by me you know to to a hammer the world is full of nails as they say right oh, and we yes. got the biggest hammer on earth the biggest hammer so. out there i mean we're currently bombing even now after syria seven countries it's i don't i mean i have to wonder are americans just painfully unaware of that fact um well this comes up to another thing yeah. too I, I i think that they are but so it's, uh, man uh, this is this is unpopular, but I think it makes sense in the abstract. Um, I think we should start the draft back up, huh? Because, uh, yeah, you think it's see you, exactly? Uh, yeah, no, I'm 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 trying to follow. I'm going to follow. You're this. Count, it's counterintuitive. It's, it's counterintuitive. counterintuitive but you think but, it but would make people more aware. Yes, okay. because if, as soon as, back during Vietnam and things like that, the, when anybody's child could end up going to that war they and die. I got 
they cared more. Nowadays, it's it's considered a volunteer military, and and a lot of the public, I think, just shrugs their shoulders and says, "Well, they volunteered, so hmm. you know," and they don't they don't necessarily care. So, uh, I think that one way to address that could potentially be to reintroduce the draft, which is not not a thing I necessarily want, but it's it's yeah, but it's a way to get everybody back involved. Um, in thinking about these wars from 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 a more global perspective, and, and you know, because ultimately people start with what happens inside the walls of their house, and um, right. if 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 their children could be dressed, I mean, we just had a guy, a, a young man, die um, in Afghanistan at an air base uh, in Afghanistan a couple months ago. That, that you know, maybe a month ago, that was um, less than a year old on nine eleven. That's so how long are we going to be doing this? this yeah, it's insane. Um, you, you know, I you made a point earlier about the last moral um, or necessary war we fought was World War II, and I agreed with you. There's been nothing since then. Uh-huh. It wasn't. I mean, what we're doing is our military is basically making the world safe for corporate profiteering. It's uh, of course <laughs> none of this is about anything other than that. Um, Absolutely not. So. You know, I believe like you, I um, I appreciate the T-shirt you mentioned that I'm against the next war as am I. Look, I don't, I, you know, war should always be a, a last resort, not a preemptive right. thing that we use. And this is the neoist, and I say neoist because I think the neoliberals and the neocons share the same ideals. The neoist policy yeah. of preemptive military use is perfectly acceptable. It is part of American empire, and American empire is american corporations you know i just it's to me this is just a disgusting worldview i can't fathom any of it and this is the one area actually that i agree with rand paul on like there's a lot of areas i yeah rand paul does great with this he does great with this one thing and well not just this one thing i also agree with him on well on policing too he does a really good job about talking about he does he does a good job talking about policing too yeah, he's for community policing. So there's some things that him and I do. And I and I, it's always interesting to me that I see he's the one guy with Bernie Sanders and a lot of these issues. But he the reason I bring him yeah. up, he had this great Twitter thread the other day that like I had to chuckle because it was just good. Uh, where he had a photo of Palpatine from Star Wars and it was directed at Oh yeah, you're talking about the one Lindsay from Festivus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. I I, I had to double one. check Don't, a couple times right. to make sure that was actually Rand Paul, know, right? like his account. I'm like, this doesn't it's make so sense funny. to me, it but so it's funny. fantastic. Yeah, he said, "Don't worry, Lindsay. Yeah, Graham, and, we're still bombing eight other, seven other countries." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then he talked about John Bolton. He's like, John Bolton must be oh. really confused having it because he's never oh, actually yeah. had to pull out of a war before. Exactly. You know, but <laughs> but like that's right. He did yeah. go on to say that. The entire thread was fucking yeah. hysterical. Like, I literally was... Oh, like, it was amazing. I had to retweet it. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, but when Rand is on, he's really on. <laughs> well, so a lot of, a lot of for, for your listeners, a lot of your listeners will, will be able to understand a lot of the points I take when, if they're familiar with the political compass, mm-hmm. um, the political compass being that, you know, the four quadrants and top right being uh, right-wing authoritarian, top yeah, left being left authoritarian. International relations, um, yeah. And then... The bottom ones are, are libertarian on, on right and left, and uh, I'm a left wing libertarian. So I'm a you know if you look at where Bernie Bernie's a couple couple squares left of center, I'm I'm probably a couple squares left of him. Yeah, and then uh, but I, I'm like four or five, maybe six squares down from center on the libertarian side. Um, right. So so 
from that perspective, uh, I, I do identify with Rand Paul on a lot of the non-economic yeah, no, rights and foreign stuff. policy. Um, I do yeah. think he's yeah, but the economics he comes apart. But yeah, he comes apart badly. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Believe in social programs, so that's where. Anyway, but this was a good. Thread. Yeah, and, yeah. And well, I that's a lot that, of economic students. Yeah. yeah, and I love that he was calling out all the neoconservatives in uh, in the GOP. It was it was pretty fucking funny. Um, yeah, it was pretty great. Yeah, it was a good threat. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so I'm glad that you are <laughs> out there tackling. It was funny. It was funny tackling the VA issues. Uh, I think you know this is an area that we need a lot of work in, and I think you can be anti-war and pro-veterans. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Um, so- no, of course not. But but you know it comes down to that whole that whole um, Herman Goebbels uh, quote where he talks about you know the the people can always be brought to the bidding of their leaders. He talks about how they don't really want war. The regular people. He says uh, the Nazi- uh, regular. This is during the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, oh, the Nazis yeah. during the okay. Nuremberg trials. He said he said of course the people don't want war. He says the uh, you know some poor farmer uh, you know living on a farm the best he can hope from war is to come back, uh, you know, whole, the same that he left. And, and, uh, he said, but the people can always be brought to the bidding of their leaders. All you have to do is denounce is, is, uh, tell the people they're under attack and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing that, exposing them to further danger. Mm. It works the same in any country. And, and that was directly from him. And that's exactly what we do. You look at what we did with the Dixie chicks. Right. You look at what we did. Um, you know, back during, during in the beginning of that thing, and and so it's a constant battle. Is like if I say I'm a, I'm anti-war and pro-veteran, there's going to be plenty of people that are going to try and make me out to be anti-veteran or anti-military yeah. or anti-any one of these things. And and it's obviously not true, but that's the propaganda machine at play. You know, that's that's how it works. So you got to be smart enough to to move past it and see behind the the curtain. You know. Amen. You're right on that. So, um, Steve, where can, if folks want to donate to your campaign, uh, where is the best place for them to do that? They can't yet, um, because every two years I got to re-register with with the FUC. Um, no, that's fine though, but in the next, in the next couple of months, I'm, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But in March or so, uh, the FUC registration should be open and I'll be, I'll be re-registering then. And then I can get my crowd pack back going. And then there'll be an address where it can just be sent and these sorts of things. But, um, you know, meantime, it's going to be can, a thing. And where can they follow you on Twitter then in the meantime? Yeah, real Steve Cox on Twitter. You're not going to like everything I have to say. Uh, <laughs> 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 look, I mean, but I, it's all, I'm going to be honest, you know, like, that's, that's the thing. So look, people get, people... More, let me say something on that. Cause I think, uh, I think actually a lot of people need to hear this. You're not going to agree with everybody all the time on everything. That is an impossible standard. And I see a lot of, of course. look, I see a lot of petty infighting going on. I think in the left, um, over stuff where they agree on 95%, but they're going to die on the hill of this other 5% in a way that doesn't make sense. I've been blocked by more leftists. I've been blocked by more leftists than you could imagine. This is like actual, actual leftists. No, I get it. I've, I've had, I've seen some of these arguments break out and it's very painful for me to watch this because I don't see, Yeah. I feel like people start talking past each other, you know, um, and you're going to learn more. Yeah, of course. If you just, you know, take a deep breath and have a conversation with somebody and try to be charitable to the point that they're trying to make. And I really believe that a lot of these arguments would not be happening if we were all sitting in a bar over a beer. There would be maybe a little pushback. There'd be a little conversation. We a little better than beer, but yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, you get, <laughs> but you get my point, Steve. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm going to implore 
folks out there to really try to have more unity and solidarity with each other. Um, and unless it's like a yeah. really big, big issue, you know, there are some big issues that you should not move on. I, that, and I but I think for the most part, we agree on those issues is what I'm trying to get at. And and the things that people are yeah, yeah. over are this other stuff. So no, I mean, not everybody's. Well, everybody's- I think a lot of it is based. Sorry. I think a lot of, a lot of the, the infighting and even outfighting, you know, between quote unquote sides, um, which, you know, I don't even buy the concept of sides, but, uh, the, the infighting and outfighting and however you want to put it, most of it is based on the idea that, um, they believe the person who disagrees with them is a bad person. 